Welcome to TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast where several hosts talk about the week's technology news. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh32. We have three hosts this week. I'm Randy Cashingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet, and the website spamprimer.com to help you fight spam and get your mailbox back. I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer of MacMost.com, where I post new Mac, iPhone, and iPad tutorials every day. And I also make mobile games that you can find at CleverMedia.com. And for 20 years now, I've made web-based games. And you could uh, find some of those at different websites like JustSolitaire.com. And I'm Leo Notenboom, a lover of coffee, corgis, <laughs> and computers. <laughs> Not always in that order. And, of course, the Leo behind AskLeo.com. So what's been going on this week, guys? I got a big fat nothing for me other than the usual stuff. Well, I just got back uh, from travel. That's why I haven't been here the last two weeks. We uh, drove to uh, Indianapolis, which is you know, a three-day drive, basically. And uh, both my wife and I gave speeches at the Mensa Annual Conference, the uh, annual gathering, as they call it. And it was a, a good turnout and a good crowd. I, I love speaking to Mensons because they get my jokes instantly. <laughs> cool. Cool. Did, was it recorded? I kept meaning to ask you about that. I th thought I had replied to your email about that. Um, yes, I did record it. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Right. Um, it's not video, it's, uh, but I did use slides because I had a lot of uh, fun little things to illustrate. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'll probably get into uh, Camtasia and run a slideshow and put the audio on top of that. And Oh, that would be very cool. And then have I a mean, video. That's, that's way more than I was expecting, but that's very cool. <laughs> okay. Well, and it all depends on having a good audio recording. We'll see how it is. Good. Cool. Uh, so for me this week, uh, a lot of the usual stuff. I did release a new course. I want to mention it because it's free, but it, it's interesting. I actually made this course about two months ago for a website that will go unnamed. <laughs> and um, they have uh -oh. a subscription model, uh, kind of like Netflix kind of thing. You just pay one price a month, and then you get to just you know, take courses that they have. And I thought, oh, you know, that's a, you know, I'll get paid depending upon how, how often people view my course. So I thought, you know, I should do like a course. It's just a whole bunch of tips. You know, I have a book, 101 Mac Tips. So I thought I should do like a course, 101 Mac Tips and just pack it full of all the useful stuff. And you can go in and like say, oh, lesson six looks interesting. It's about, you know, this or that or whatever. And I thought that would be really cool. And so I made the course for that. I submitted it, did all that, and uh, it went up. And then a couple of days later, they told me that they were not interested in my course, that they didn't. After they posted it. Yeah, well, they, the posting was automatic, kind of, you know. I don't really think there was anybody that was reviewing it at that level when it went live. Um, and then it was a few days later, I guess they caught up and said that they weren't really interested in, you know, they wanted a complete, like, how do you do a specific thing and then going step by step and they felt tips wasn't the thing for them. So, so I was like, oh, well, okay. Uh, so I just basically had all these videos, um, 20, 20 videos. lectures lasting yeah. an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. So I was like, what do I do with these? Uh, so I just decided to go back to, you know, the the site that treats me really well, Udemy. And I, I said, well, this is, I checked with them. I said, this is unusual. It's a, it's a course of just tips. It's not, you know, and they were like, fine, great. We love it. 
Uh, and I was like, okay. So I stuck it up there, but I didn't feel that it was the kind of thing where I wanted people to purchase it like my other courses. Like I felt this was kind of more of a, I don't know, just maybe a way to attract people to my other courses or attract people to Mac most. So I made it free, you know, and I stuck a little thing at the beginning, the end. And Udemy doesn't give you trouble for that, right? No, Udemy actually encourages, you know, they, they, they like what I'm doing, which I now have two free courses, this one and a Mac security course. And, um, both of those are free. And then I have, I think eight paid courses. Um, and they like what I'm doing with a mix, you know, trying to, cause I, cause I've got thousands of people downloading these free courses or, you know, watching the free courses and that helps attract people to my paid courses. And also of course helps attract people to Udemy, uh, you know, just to sign up to Udemy just to take my free course. So they, they like that. Um, and I like it and, and it works and I, they do allow me to notify, you know, uh, send messages to people that sign up for my courses. So when I have a new one, like probably in the fall, I'll come out with a Mac OS 10 Mojave course and I'll be able to send a message to people that have taken my courses in the past, including the free ones, including the free ones saying, I have a new course out if you're interested. So, you know, it's, it, it's good. I'll, I'll definitely benefit from it. Um, and, but in the meantime, people just get all that information for free. So anyway, we'll, we'll include a link in the show notes uh, for that course. Cool. Very, very cool. Yeah. So you we said you didn't that. have much going on. Well, I'd... just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so uh, we don't have Kevin to give us our fancy sound. Breach of the week. Here we go. <laughs> um so today, this this week's breaches, I, I would consider it to be kind of run of the mill. I mention it just because it's, um, again, I try to choose the breaches that actually have something to uh, to perhaps learn from or or something unique about them. Last week, it was announced in the Chicago Tribune that uh, Macy's, uh, the department store here in the United States, had a breach of some sort, and uh, that people's well, information, I'll just say that, was uh, potentially compromised. So, great, fine, I have a Macy's account. And, of course, I have an online Macy's account because that's just the kind of guy I am. And I decided that even though there was almost no information about exactly what had been stolen, uh, what had been compromised, uh, whether or not I was affected, I never ever got a single piece of uh, email from Macy's, which is the beginning of the, uh, the quote-unquote bad experience. Um, so that was real disappointing, but I went out and I decided, you know what, I'll just change my password anyway. Always a good thing to do um, if there's even a hint of some kind of a breach or some kind of a compromise on any of the sites or services that you use. It never hurts to change your password. So I figured I'll go do that. As it turns out, the Macy's UI for changing your password is, I'll just say, horrific. Basically, it's a couple of, you know, it's the, it's the standard two-field approach where they have you enter your password in twice, but it's actually part of an update your personal information page. And if you don't have all of the personal information that they require filled out, oh, no. you can't change your password. <laughs> Which is just, I mean, again, that, that to me qualifies as horrific, especially for something like a breach where you want to make it super easy for people to go in, change their password, just fix it right now. Because the number of people that are just going to stop 
at this point and say, no, I'm not going to jump through these hoops. I'm not going to go through this hassle to change my password um, is going to be pretty high. So uh, me being the good soldier that I am, I went ahead and I gave them, you know, the rest of the information that they, they wanted to require. Information that, by the way, by virtue of my having a credit card with Macy's, they actually already had. They didn't pre-populate the field or the... the you mean like your address and stuff? Exactly. Yeah. They had my name and my email address. Um, but things like address, mailing address, phone numbers, uh, that kind of stuff were not filled in and they were required before I could submit the form. So uh, a lesson, you know, so, so the takeaway, there are two takeaways here. One, if you are a service that uh, takes passwords, make it easy for people to change their password, please. Um, it will become important to you at some point. And the other one is what I said earlier for, uh, for any of you who uh, are using services where there's a hint of a breach, a rumor of a breach, news of a breach that, no, you didn't get contacted directly, but... Um, if you're at all unsure, change your password if you can. Right. So. Well, and this uh, third party, as they called it in the Chicago Tribune, they discovered their suspicious login activities on June 11th, but that third party had access to customer accounts starting April 26th, and they didn't even get it closed until the next day. So right. they have plenty of time to download anything they wanted. Depending on the kind of access that they had, depending on right. just exactly what what databases or what fields or whatever was exposed, absolutely, they had plenty of time to, to sort of poke around there and see what they could find. Hmm. And I'm a little suspicious of the Tribune's reporting on this because a couple of paragraphs down, it says, global cybersecurity spending will exceed $1 trillion from 2017 to 2010. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if they meant 2020. Uh, I would assume, but whatever, yeah, but they're spending in reverse. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, yeah. So no information there as far as I'm concerned. Right. Well, the article, like I said, I'm not, I'm not really as concerned about the article. I would chalk that one up to a simple typo that hasn't been caught yet. I mean, I'm not going to, not going to call them on bad journalism, but what I, what really disappoints me is the lack of information coming directly from Macy's. Um, at, a, at a minimum, minimum, I should have gotten an email from Macy's letting me know that, it, that, hey, this happened. We don't know if you're affected or we do know or we don't know, right? I mean, there's, there's that much information they should be able to provide. And, and this article didn't come out until a month after they discovered this. Right. So they had plenty of time to notify they their own customers. Lots and lots of time. And like I said, I'm still waiting. Yeah. So. Hmm. Pretty pathetic. Yep. Yikes. So, so, so speaking of pathetic things, um, <laughs> the Daily Beast had this headline that caught my eye, and it read, Obama loses 2 million followers in Twitter's crackdown on fake accounts. And the thing that bothers me about that isn't that they're cracking down fake accounts. You know, it's about time. But it's like he didn't have those 2 million followers in the first place. He didn't lose any actual people that were reading his stuff, whether they like it or not. I mean, so to say he lost these people is really strange. And of course, deep down the article, it mentions Trump lost 325,000 of his 53 million, but uh, Obama lost 2.3 million, uh, still leaving him as the third most followed person on Twitter 
after Katy Perry and Justin Bieber, and he has 101 million people still. So presumably most of those people are real and occasionally log into Twitter and see what's going on. But uh, he didn't actually lose any real humans. Yeah, it is one of those interesting things where he didn't, like you said, your wording was exactly correct. He didn't lose them. Account went down, but that's all. Yeah, um, it was a fake were, account. There were not two, he didn't lose 2 million followers. He lost 2 million fake accounts. And those are two distinctly different things. And, so, and great to lose fake accounts. You know, let's get a real count. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, as a thinking of myself as somebody that broadcasts on Twitter to a much, much smaller number than any of those. Um, <laughs> yeah, me you know, too. The thing is, is if I see, I, I, actually, I'm sure, I think I have like seven or 8,000 on Twitter. I don't really try to push Twitter too much. But, you know, I'm sure that if I also looked I, and I had some sort of tracking, I don't know if they keep, there's tracking or if I have to do it myself or something, but I'm sure I lost 50 or 100 or whatever the equivalent percentage is. Yeah, I think uh, I lost a few too. Yeah, and but you know what? I didn't lose any and you didn't, of course, right. you said you didn't lose any and yep. I, there's no reason for me to feel bad about that because those people didn't exist anyway. I, I think one of the, the things that, I don't know if I saw this article, but I saw others like it talking about how like Obama lost 2 million and Trump lost uh, less and so the implication was Obama had more fake users than Trump did. But if the whole idea of what Twitter's trying to do is trying to cut back on bots, and if the idea is that the bots had this particular agenda, then it makes sense that more of them would follow Obama sure. than would follow Trump. As a matter of fact, I saw a um I saw somebody what was it? Oh, they, they were, there's some article that was like a look, a look behind a fake Twitter account or something like that. And it was just looking at, you know, oh, here's when this account signed up, here's a bunch of stuff it posted. And then here's the, here's the post that was obviously the idea behind this account in the first place. Um, and it was something like, you know, I, I've been a lifelong Democrat, but now I'm thinking of leaving the party or something and linking to some sort of fake news article. Um, which is the idea. It, you know, if you want to have that agenda, you don't want it, people to go look at the account and say, oh, they follow Trump, but they don't follow Obama because that's not going to, to help. What's going to help right. is if they don't follow Trump. Right. Matter of fact, what's going to help probably is if they don't follow either Trump or Hillary Clinton, but follow Obama. And that way you're getting people that are kind of moderate, right? That right. already weren't following Hillary Clinton in the, during the last election. And they look at this account and say, well, this account, somebody I will follow because they're not following Trump, but they are following Obama and they're not following Clinton either. So that's kind of like where I am. I'm in the middle. And <laughs> then the seed is planted and, you know, months later it has this article and then the person clicks through to read that's fake. It's, um, it's, it's basically if you're trying to influence somebody, yeah. you want to get in their face. You want them to see your message. So if you are attempting to influence, say, moderate Democrats, that means you want your posts to be seen by moderate Democrats, even if you yourself are not one. Um, So it makes total sense that, you know, there'd be this large majority of um, um, fake followers. And and the real point, of course, is what's the percentage they lost? And Obama did lose a little more than 2% of of his numbers. And we're Mm -hmm. not talking about people again. And Trump lost 0.7%. So 
Right. It, it right. still holds even if you look at the percentage. And I don't know if people realize too how, you know, people think, okay, so there's a fake account. It's set up. It's saying these things. It's linking these things. It's doing it for months or even years. And then it does this one thing. And it's like, that seems like a lot of work. And it's not. Um, and I, so I, one of my accounts is kind of like a bot. <laughs> it's uh, my at MacMost account. If you look at it, I seem to post every day twice a day about my new video, about an hour after the video goes live and sometime later in the day, I post again. But I actually kind of don't. I have a thing set up that when I post the new video, it and I've written the code myself, it automatically sets up those two tweets. So I'm doing it, but I'm doing it early in the morning or actually even when I schedule the video. So if I schedule the video a day or a night before or whatever, it sets up those tweets and I don't have to think about it. So instead of me having to go and have an alarm go off at 7 p.m. or something saying, hey, remember to post your, you know, post to Twitter, the evening post, I just have it all set up to kind of do it on one action. I, so I do the same thing. And as it turns yeah. out, you don't have to write any code if you're running WordPress. There are plugins well, that'll sure. do that for you. Well, yeah, and mine is my own plugin that I wrote. Understood, of course, that's, of course. That's but my weird thing. But I understand. <laughs> you could do, there's nothing to prevent me from doing it, you know, uh, well in advance. Matter of fact, I'm scheduling posts for my upcoming travel, and those Twitter posts are part of that process. Um, so you could go and set up a Twitter account and schedule all of the posts, including one 15 months from now that posts to some sort of fake article that is the whole purpose of doing that. And it's one action, and it's done, and that Twitter account is going to seem like it's alive and doing things over the next 15 months. Yep. And there's no person involved. And, and then you could set up a thousand accounts like that, like in a snap of a finger, uh, each randomly posting something, you know, the top article at msnbc.com and the top article at this, you know, every other day until it finally posts this. Well, and there's all sorts of Twitter bots that look for any kind of keyword yeah. um, that, then retweet that tweet automatically. And they, yes. they just churn out all this stuff. Uh, yeah, and and it's just completely uh, automated. And I think the bottom line is, is that, you know, people need to treat Twitter a little differently than a lot of people do. I, I, I follow people that either are, I know are real people because I know them, right. or if they're kind of, you know, I don't want to use the word celebrity because somebody like a tech journalist isn't necessarily a celebrity, but somebody that is like a real person at the, and I make sure I'm looking at the real account. I, I take the effort and I make sure that, you know, so yeah, but there are a lot of people that just say, Oh, I like what that person says. I'll follow them. But you don't know. You just don't know if that's a real person or not. You mean you can't believe everything you find on the internet? Yep. Yeah, that's right. Oh man. But, but you know, sometimes, but it, the problem with these Twitter accounts is you find an account that a hundred times you know, reinforces what you believe and seems to be somebody just like you. And the hundred and first time is when they're actually trying to uh, influence your opinion. And, uh, and guess what? They're just programmed to look just like you. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, so it's tough. Psychologically, it's, it's really tough. It's like if you met somebody that then, you know, a real person that then dedicated themselves to doing everything they could to make you like them for a year, until they asked you to borrow a hundred bucks and then, and then you, well, you, you would think like, Oh, well that seems odd that they would put all of that effort into a year long friendship 
and then ask me for just a hundred dollars and I give it to them and then they just disappear and turns out, you know, they didn't exist or something. I think there's a, there's an opportunity here. Aren't there dating books that work the same way? Uh, oh, dating apps you mean or something or dating books dating books. manuals how to how to get a date oh right. oh like uh, uh yeah like how to influence people or stuff like that something like that yeah the tricks yeah yeah how would you know leo you've been yeah. married what 200 years now pretty much yeah yeah no 30 38 <laughs> long right. enough long enough to know that i don't want to go dating again <laughs> Well, and to close this out, I saw that also Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey lost 200,000 followers, fake <laughs> followers. Poor guy. Yeah. yeah. I'd imagine he's one of the people that a lot of these fake accounts really do like to follow because, yeah, yeah, there's probably probably a lot of them followed. I bet you Elon Musk got followed a lot and, you know, probably. Yeah, pretty some, much it, any name that's in the news a lot. Beyonce probably got followed a ton too. <laughs> Yeah, so switching gears, um, here's an interesting story I found. Uh, so on both Android and Mac OS, or I, I'm sorry, iOS, you can get apps that replace your keyboard. You know, you get third-party keyboards. So you don't have to use the standard built-in Android or iOS keyboard. And many of these keyboards do really cool things. Some of them aren't even keyboards. They're like collections of, uh, you know, animated GIFs or they're, things that you can write with your finger and it translates the letters into characters. Some of them are different, you know, types of, uh, like you can uh, use um, some of them to swipe type. So you swipe from letter to letter and it figures out what word you're typing. And one of the most popular ones is something called Gboard and it's Google's official third-party keyboard. Well, I guess actually for Android, is it really third-party? I don't know. But on iOS, it certainly is. Uh, and, their keyboard's got a lot, lot of cool functions, um, one of which is swipe typing, which is one of the reasons I like to use Gboard uh, sometimes. Uh, but they added a new feature, uh, the ability to type with Morse code. And they're not the only keyboard, third-party keyboard to do this. There are other really? ones as well. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, this is their major brand, and a lot of people already use their keyboard. So you, you add it as a language. So they have different, you know, you could switch languages, switch to a Swedish keyboard or a you know, Greek keyboard or whatever. But, and one of the ones you can switch to now with the latest version is Morse code. And you just get a big key on the left that's a dot, a big key. So, on the so you're right tapping on your dash. screen. Yeah, I'm a little, you know, I was a little disappointed because I thought that it would just be one button. And then however long you held it down, it was interpreting those as dots and dashes. But it's actually a left left tap for a dot and a right tap for a dash which is pretty common in ham radio okay so yeah uh that uh, i was gonna because you guys are a lot more experienced in that than i am uh i had to learn morse code to take the ham radio test back in the late 80s but i haven't really used it since then but so i saw this and there's also a space bar and the idea being that instead of trying to guess where your pauses are you could type at any speed you want and hit the space bar. So your dot, dash, and space bar. And that's uh, definitely unusual. Unusual, yeah. And there's a delete key too, which is handy. Um, you know. But the idea is that you can use it. Now, it can be seen as an accessibility feature. It could be seen as a feature for people that really just never can get the hang of typing on a, uh, especially a smaller or, screen. Or total phone. ham radio geeks. Total ham radio geek. Yeah. I, I was interested, I wrote, did a little write-up on this. And one of the things I thought was, could you actually, could somebody really type faster than, uh, you know, using this Morse code keyboard than with a regular keyboard? And surprisingly, I, I 
searched for what's the average typing speed of an American on a you know regular typewriter, and the answer is 40 words per minute is the is the average. Um, but of course, it's going to be slower on a little phone keyboard, right? Especially a phone as opposed to like a tablet, you know, where you just are using your thumbs pretty much. So 40 words per minute. And I thought, okay, what speed do experienced, you know, people experienced from Morse code type at? And I found a reference stating that back in the heyday of the, uh, of teletypes and, and, uh, you know, uh, wired and wireless Morse code communication, you pretty much had to achieve a speed of 40 words per minute to be a, an operator. Um, I thought it was interesting. Those two numbers are exactly the same. And uh, so indeed, somebody, you know, you go back to 1905 and find somebody that's a good expert at this and they're going to do 40 words a minute or more. The record is 75 apparently. Um, and then now you get this Morse code keyboard, which I think, uh, you know, if you got good at it, you could do 40 words a minute probably on this, and you may be of the type of person like me that can't ever hit 40 words a minute on a little phone keyboard. Would you guys, either of you guys do Morse code at all? On I don't. I learned it long enough to, you know, or got competent enough to pass the test and haven't used it since. Yeah. I didn't get my license until after it was no longer a requirement. So, so you never had to do it? Wow. Never had to do it. I, I remember the trick when I got, uh, when I was studying for my license. Um, which would have been around 86, I'm thinking, um, was, you know, you try to learn Morse code and then eventually you're doing it in some, old, you know, older, experienced uh, amateur radio operator goes and says, oh, do you want me to tell you how to pass that? <laughs> it's not that hard. All you do is when, you, when they play the test, don't try to do it. Just write down dot, dash, dot, dash, dot, dash. And then they give you as much time as you want translated on the piece of paper to letters and i was like oh of course <laughs> you don't really need to learn it at any good speed at all so that that was the secret just write down the dots and dashes i um and i did a, a similar strategy where if i knew the letter i wrote it down yeah and if i didn't i left a blank and then once you had the word you know with a couple of missing letters it's like playing a wheel <laughs> wheel of fortune sure. it's like yeah that's obviously strategy or that's obviously you know 73 or something so it, so the, it so wasn't the, wasn't yeah. difficult the funny thing was i actually used this skill recently when i went to an escape room have you either of you guys ever done an escape room i haven't done mm -hmm. one but i know what they are yeah so one of the things in this escape room was a message that was given, uh, and I immediately recognized it as Morse code. And I immediately recognized that, oh, wait, there was a Morse code sheet somewhere in the room that I, we had seen before. So I grabbed the Morse code sheet because I don't remember what letters go to what. Right. And then there, the message is playing you know, over the speaker. And you know, the other people in the room with me are like, oh, how are we going to do this? And I was like, I got this. And I just sat there and I went <laughs> dot, dash, dot, dot, dot. Until, and then it was done. And they were like, well, that doesn't tell us what it is. And I, yes, it does. Give me a second. And then I used the little chart they had and I, I figured out what, uh, what it was. So that skill came in handy, if you can call it handy. I mean, we were playing a game, so it wasn't right. that kind of situation. But if you ever find yourself, you know, in a POW camp or something like that, you, know, you, sure. you might need it. Yeah, and, and Google has this app. So it's a web-based app for teaching Morse code. Um, and you actually use it on your phone. So you go to that, the site on your phone, 
and then you um, you use their keyboard, and it's a little game kind of thing. And they claim that if you just do it for an hour, that you'll be on your way. You'll have it down, and you know you'll get pretty good at it. So I don't know. Might be uh, it might be a fun thing for me to do if I have a spare hour here there, because <laughs> I get to see. I would just love to be able to just when other people are around and you know people are doing things on their phone for me to be out there with a Morse code keyboard stabbing it with my <laughs> with my thumb and people would be like, "What are you doing?" I'm like I'm just typing like you guys are. Well, you know, back in 2005, Jay Leno had a couple of people on. One guy that was, as I recall, he was the world champion speed text message guy. Mm -hmm. And he brought in two guys that um, are contesters with Morris Code, ham radio operators. And he he gave them both a message and said, go. And the ham radio guys blew him out of the water. Oh, wow. So... I'll uh, I'll find the uh, the YouTube video for that and put that on the show page too. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I probably could type faster than I could actually type, as in like the standard touching each key. I think the swipe typing probably I would beat it because I'm I could be pretty fast at that. I tend to use swipe um, almost exclusively, although um, one of my friends has impressed me with her use of uh, the voice recognition voice to text. It's amazingly good. Not that you don't have your share of autocorrect errors, but um, it's it actually does an amazingly good job. So it's not uncommon, especially when she's visiting and you know, maybe texting her husband, that she'll be off on one side whispering at her phone real quietly because that's <laughs> her way to get the, uh, to get, uh, you know, her, her way to type essentially is to talk to the phone. And it works really, really well for her. And I do use Gboard myself. I haven't noticed this uh, new addition to it. I went, I went looking and I couldn't find it yet. So I'm not sure it's, it's rolled out everywhere. Surely hasn't. Yeah, maybe not. But when I, I you know, I, so I like the swiping. I, I do that pretty well. But every once in a while, you'll say Photoshop and it will come out Gramercy. I was like, what? Where'd you get that? So you, I think if you add in the time you have to take to proofread, what the swipe keyboard comes up with, you might not be as fast. I end up with miss misses on the swipe keyboard as well. Um, Cause it's also do, it's doing a combination of pattern recognition and predictive, I'm sure. So it's, it's not, I end up having to, to proofread what I'm about to send, even if I'm using swipe. Yeah. Oh yeah. You definitely got it. Yeah. But as far as, you know, a real keyboard, Gary, I'm about 120 words a minute. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can imagine. I know because you've got a secret weapon. Yeah, I use the Dvorak keyboard. Yeah. I'll, I'll link to a site on that too. Happens to be which, mine. Which, by the way, is available on Gboard. Sure. Yes. Oh, and, and standard. Along with some other really obscure keyboards. <laughs> well, I'm pretty yeah, sure you can switch to it just normally. You don't need Gboard. You can switch to Yes. Yeah. I'm yeah. Sure. It's, it's really easy to get on a phone, but the problem is I'm a touch typist on Dvorak. So if I'm looking at the keyboard, which on the phone you really have to, <laughs> yeah. I could hardly type on it. So I actually use QWERTY on my swipe keyboard. Hmm. Interesting. Go figure. Wow. Well, yeah. I suppose it's like being ambidextrous. I mean, you get if you're doing that enough using both keyboards, there's no issue. I'm sure if uh, you only used one, if you only used Dvorak for a long time, and then you tried to use a QWERTY even on the touch, it would probably be hard. But yeah, I, I tend to two-finger on QWERTY now when I'm on a real computer. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can see that. Cool. All right. Well, what's next? You. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, I write a weird news column. That's my, that's my main gig. So the the number one phrase in weird news is Florida man. <laughs> so I spotted this this article of in of all places Gizmodo. It's like what is Gizmodo doing with the Florida man story? And that was Florida man jailed for failing to unlock his phone. So this guy, it was a routine traffic stop and the cop found a little bit of marijuana and apparently arrested the guy and demanded that he unlock his phone to look for evidence. Well, this guy had already admitted the marijuana was his. So what evidence are we looking for? So it sounds like a real fishing expedition and an outrageous violation of civil rights, but the judge upheld the cops and threw this guy in jail for 180 days. It sounds like, you know, a civil rights nightmare that we all worry about because, you know, we put our entire lives in our phones. A lot of courts, including federal courts, have ruled that, no, the cops have to have a warrant to make you unlock your phone. Um, but, of course, this guy just said, I don't remember my password. And they called that contempt because, of course, you know your password. Who knows if he does or not, and uh, threw him in jail. I thought that this had already been decided, though, even at the Supreme Court level, if not at least the federal court level, that um, typed in passwords and PIN codes um, are not something that they can compel you to provide. Um, it's things like fingerprints, which is where this comes up all the time. Um, right. they, they can uh, force you to let, let them use your finger. Right, right. <laughs> As but it not, for, not for typing in your PIN. Exactly. Right, right. So, so like I said, I thought this had been decided, so I'm kind of surprised that um, this little corner of the world, well, I guess I'm not surprised if that corner of the world uh, would go through this. And there's um, another Supreme Court ruling this seems to violate because they called in a, uh, a police dog even before they got this guy pulled over. So it really sounds like a fishing expedition. And... Supreme Court ruled in 2015 that police are not allowed to turn traffic stops into investigations of other possible infractions. So it sounds like this is something that's bound to go up into higher courts and probably will be overturned, but what a nightmare in the meantime. Yeah, yeah I would hope so. I would hope it would, I would actually hope it would go to a higher court. So yeah. mm. that's all I have to say on that one. Okay. That's interesting. So something a little bit lighter. <laughs> um, so the news came out this week that in some of the preview builds of Windows 10, they've been adding features to Notepad. Notepad is um, uh, an app that actually was part of Windows 1.0 back in 1983, the same year that I started out at Microsoft. That was the big thing that they were working on was Windows 1.0. Well, it, uh, Windows 1.0 is 1985, I think. It wasn't it? Uh, no. I think it was a DOS program before that. No. Not really? So. Um, okay. Anyway, regard, irregardless, the, uh, the point is it's old. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's been around forever. And whenever it appeared in Windows, it hasn't changed uh, not, much, not, you know, not much at all since, uh, since Windows' original release. Now, the interesting thing about it 
is that Notepad actually has a purpose. And it's not the purpose that you might think. Um, the original purpose of Notepad, well, we'll drop back a little bit. There are things that applications do in Windows that are very, very common. And one of those things is asking you to type in text. So what Windows has is what they're called common controls. So rather than each program having to write its own text entry field, it uses this feature built into Windows that says put a text entry field here and when they're done typing, you know, give me what they said. Notepad is essentially the simplest app in the world in that it, it, it has, the program itself has a text entry field and that's it. Its purpose originally was to be the test application for text entry. Oh, really? And they obviously they included it in Windows because it actually turns out typing in text and being able to do some simple things with it turns out to be pretty useful. Um, I'm sure that almost any Windows user uh, who's used Windows for any amount of time will have used it at least once, if for no other reason than to remove formatting from from you know, a Word document or something like that. Since when, since Notepad is plain text only, as soon as you paste in rich, fancy text from something like Word, all you get is the plain text. It's a great, easy way to um, to clean things up. Yep, there are utilities, and there are even keyboard shortcuts that you could do that within Word itself. But it's one of those really obvious, really common kinds of things. So I, I use it uh, because it can run as administrator, and you can. Uh, edit system files very easily. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I know other programs can too, but that's the one that's there and real easy to do. Yep. Yep. Um, it's especially good for probably the hosts file is the one that you might exactly uh, play with from time to time when you're uh, faking IP addresses to sites under development. Yep. That's a really good use for it. Um, there are others, but yeah, it's, it's, it's quick. It's simple. I mean, it's, it's, it's as lightweight as an application can possibly be in Windows until now. So now they're finally going to add some features, uh, visual zoom, a wraparound search, a few other things. Like I said, those, the fact that it's going to get some features, meh. I mean, you know, if, if you're looking for features, you probably ended up using a different application like Notepad++, which is a third-party application that is basically uh, pretty much a full-featured text editor. But it's kind of cool. It's kind of interesting. But I just thought it was an interesting a change in strategy for one of Windows' uh, most oldest and most fundamental applications. For the record, I rarely use Notepad even for editing the hosts file. I use an actually an older program, a program oh, no. older than Notepad that predates Windows. It actually predates DOS. I use Vi um, or ah. Vim or GVim as it's you, as it's. You more. say Vi, not Vi. I say Vi. Yeah, I I've never Vi. heard it said Vi. Well, oh, it must be a Microsoft thing. Might be. It's, or, it's, <laughs> or it's GIF versus GIF. Who knows, right? <laughs> but the point is that um, you know, that program, and one of the reasons I use it, is that it's on absolutely every platform, and you can make it work exactly the same on absolutely every platform. And yeah, if I want to run it in administrator mode, I can do that too. So, but that's Notepad. Changes to a familiar face. Hmm, interesting. Well, Certainly, uh, you know, the equivalent on the Mac was something called Simple Text. Mm -hmm. But they actually did upgrade, uh, change it to Text Edit at some point. Mm -hmm. And then they kept updating that. And that actually has, does get, 
has it's basically the the word processors from around 1990. Mm -hmm. That's where text edit is now. It's like right. you can do formatting and you know all sorts of things, and it produces RTFD documents, um, which is a standard. And so it's nice that it's you know instead of creating its own little right, uh, you know here's the 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 type of document saves it's RTFD and you can. Yeah. Okay. Windows comes with something like that too, uh, WordPad. WordPad, that's what it's called. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so it's basically like it, it's the same thing, except that on Windows they kept Notepad around when they brought about WordPad. Right. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Cool. Well, speaking of advancing software, <laughs> um, there's a there's a rumor that's a fairly substantial rumor from Bloomberg uh, that Adobe is going to bring full featured Photoshop to the iPad next year and they're going to be announcing it later this year at their big Adobe conference. What's significant about this is Photoshop's the app that I've always used. Other, I've heard other people always use when talking about the difference between tablets and computers. You know, you say, people say, Oh, are tablets replacing computers? And the answer is no professionals still need computers. If you use a professional app like Photoshop, you need a computer. And now it looks like that line may be crossed and that very app used often as an example is going to be on the iPad. Um, now, Adobe has things called Photoshop for the iPad and has for a while, but they're, like, there's one called Photoshop Sketch, which is for drawing, and another called Photoshop Express, which is a small subset of photo editing things. But the idea that they would just take their flagship product and say, here's the whole thing, all the features, and it's going to be on the iPad um, is interesting. And it goes along with, you know, Apple trying to push the iPad maybe to more users. Also, you know, there's a 12.9-inch iPad Pro. I could definitely see um, a Photoshop Pro, you know, as in a person, a, a professional Photoshop user um, with one of those big iPads uh, with the Photoshop app. Um, just using an iPad, you know, nice, beautiful Retina touchscreen, true tone display, Apple um, Pencil support, probably Apple Pencil. Uh, you know, just everything looks beautiful. You can bring your photos right into it. Uh, you, yeah, you know, I can, I can see them anyway. out in the field. Actually, that's something that the iPad would uh, would allow yeah. them to do much more easily. Yeah, and it's uh, you know if you're you know, most of the Photoshop stuff you do, you know, I, I think one of the th other things that made PCs superior to tablets was, you know, handling these large files and you need, you know, drives and, you know, storage and all this. But, you know, Adobe's already taken all their stuff, including Photoshop, to the cloud. And it's not unusual if somebody wants to take advantage of all that Adobe's offering that you would have the images you're working on you know, cloud-based at this point. So, that problem kind of solved itself in that you wouldn't necessarily just, you know, have to be like, well, how am I going to attach a terabyte drive to the iPad, which is what, how I usually work. It's like, no, it's all just on, in your cloud storage. That's where the files it does are. become dependent on your internet speed, but yeah, it does. But if you're, I mean, if you're at that level where you're a pro buying the most expensive sure. iPad, no, you probably, that's not. So, so put me down as somewhat skeptical. Yeah. Um, because I do use Photoshop, I use it, I use it quite a bit, um, and even even as as much as I use it, I'm a rank amateur. But it is absolutely amazing the amount of I'll just say stuff that's in Photoshop. It's a huge yeah. application, and there are two parts to the problem. 
right? One is simply dealing with that huge an application on um, a uh, uh, limited memory. Limited memory, limited. It's it's more than limited memory. I mean, even and, you know, and I, limited I, I, storage. Processors are like, I mean, there's just a lot. One of the things that I've got going for me is I've got this 12-core processor that I'm doing my Photoshop work on. Um, I'm sure that iPads are certainly powerful, but to have all of that um, on an iPad seems a stretch. The other part, and this is the part that I think that uh, there's, I suppose, some hope for, is translating the user interface into something that works with touch. Yeah, Because right now, Photoshop professionals, I've been watching a number of Photoshop videos as well. Photoshop professionals, they love their keyboard shortcuts and they love micro movement with a mouse. And it's those, those kinds of things are, I, I just can't envision them being easy to replicate. Um, not that they can't be done, but I just think it'll be interesting to see how they pull it off. My prediction is that it actually won't be full. It'll be like an 80% version of desktop Photoshop, which for a tremendous number of people, probably plenty. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think with the Apple Pencil, like Randy pointed out, I think it makes it a lot easier. There are all, we're already, for a long time now, people using Photoshop with like a Wacom tablet, you know, where they're basically using a stylus on a touch screen to interact with the interface. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that, I think, is a more difficult thing. They are using a what is meant for a mouse and cursor, and they're using it on a touchscreen, whereas this touch version of Photoshop would be designed for n- not just using maybe the Apple Pencil, but multi-touch, which is a big thing that, you know, the, a lot of these tablets aren't multi-touch. Uh, not tablets, sorry. Well, you know, like the tablet you attach to your computer drawing tablet and mm-hmm. screen tablets like the Wacom, you know, but having a multi-touch interface where you could actually be drawing with the pencil with one hand and touching one or two or three buttons with your other hand at the same time to get an effect um, could be interesting. Um, should note that uh, I think Microsoft has really been moving with its office suite uh, towards this. I, I don't know how close they are now, but I know they've been getting close to pretty full featured word um, for the iPad and uh, I assume for it's, it's interesting because just I mean before before this um, uh, this recording I stumbled across some headlines that said Microsoft had just today released updated versions of um, Microsoft Office for Android and I haven't had a chance to check them out yet but yeah they're definitely moving in that kind of they're moving that direction and so now like the, the line has moved you know there's still professional applications that are not ready you know it's hard to envision them being on a tablet. Video yeah, editing is... Video, that's the one. That's, well, it's one of them, except that there's a lot of inroads because there are a lot of video editing apps out there and a lot of them do some pretty advanced stuff. Taking advantage of the fact that these tablets, the iPad in particular, has some pretty advanced graphics chips in it. So some of the stuff, you know, the tablets may be behind a little bit on crunching numbers, you know, not having, you know, that quad core and six core processors and things like that. But in terms of handling graphics, they're pretty good. Um, so, you know, video editing, there's a lot of really advanced apps out there. Uh, so I, I think there's, this might be the thing that maybe starts to get like maybe Adobe, the premiere team, maybe they're thinking, Hey, we need a roadmap for however many years out, 
how we're right. going to bring full-fledged uh, Premiere and maybe some other apps as well. And the other one is development tools. Really, uh, what, you know, the, I think the last holdout, if all pro-type apps are going to come to uh, tablets, development tools will be the last one. Having something like on the Apple side, uh, Xcode, and having like you know visual the visual suites of you know programming stuff on the Microsoft side, having them available on tablets is, uh, I mean, those things have lots of windows, lots of tiny bits of text, oh, yeah. lots of typing on a keyboard while you're looking at things on the screen. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty intense programs. I, I think some graphics pros, they think they have lots of buttons on their screen and lots of controls when they're editing images or video. Take a look at somebody who's working in Xcode sometimes. <laughs> it's just, you look at it, it's like, whoa, it's like a, you know, you're controlling, what are you controlling, space station with that? You know, it's just really something. So, hmm. so yeah. Yep. Yep. No, it's, it, it's interesting stuff. I mean, it's, it'll be interesting to see exactly how far uh, they'll be able to take tablet technology. I look forward to seeing it. Yeah. One of these days, maybe I'll have to buy an iPad. Yeah, Randy went there. Yeah, I just got one a couple months yeah. ago. Yeah, indeed. So there, well, there's, the rumors are there's going to be a lot of new ones out later this year, like a big refresh of the whole line. So, uh, Well, they got to make them all work with the pencil. So, yeah, because they know if the cheap one works with the pencil and the expensive ones work with the pencil, they got to fill out the middle and say, okay, they right. all work with the pencil and, and put some, maybe some speed boosts and things like that uh, in there. Yeah, for sure. And I did get the pencil. It's really handy in meetings when I you know, have the PDF of all the, the meeting packet and I can make notes on it and you know, mark something that I want to uh, bring up in the meeting or something. I, I love it for that. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So what do you, well, you know, I guess we're getting near the end of the show. Uh, What's upcoming? Yeah, upcoming. So I'm going to, I should probably be missing quite a few episodes from now on. Uh, the next three, I will be traveling through Europe. I usually do mm-hmm. a family trip every year. Um, and this year is going to be a basically train travel through Eastern Europe. Um, going to Venice, then Vienna, then Budapest, and then Prague. And so we land in the first city there, we land in Venice, and we fly home from Prague. And uh, everything in between, we've got uh, train tickets booked. Uh, and the so, trains are actually really good there. I've, I've yeah, been to are. Budapest and, and Prague, not the first two, but uh, fabulous trains there. Yeah, looking forward to that. Um, looking forward. You know, they, it takes about, I think, a couple of those trips are eight hours. There's one that's sh- shorter. Um, so you're not really losing much time. I mean, if you wanted to fly, getting to the airport on time and landing and then getting to your hotel and all that, it would probably take a good part of the day anyway. Um, so, and then you get to relax on a train and see the scenery. And the, these routes that we're taking are supposed to be some of the most scenic train routes in the world. Um, so I'm looking forward to So you're to going that. at night? No, no, we're, well, yeah, yeah, we're, I've done that before. And actually I've done that once. I took a train once from Hamburg to Paris and we took the overnight train and it was so less exciting than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it's about maybe from a technology standpoint, just having how that room is like a little space capsule with like so many things in it, you know, is cool. But, uh, what they don't tell you is basically you're taking a three hour train trip uh, and stretching it out to all night by basic by parking you in train yards for hours on end, 
So oh. if you're paying attention to what's going on, you notice you stop at like 3 a.m. and then you don't start again until 5 a.m. And it's like, what were we doing? Oh, they just park the cars, the, the sleeper cars, this train uh, depot, and then they pick them up, you know, for the morning run into Paris. And it wasn't very exciting. So these, I, I've taken day trains too, uh, most recently through Japan. And they're much more interesting. It's beautiful scenery. It's uh, very relaxing. It's like the coach seats are the equivalent to first class on an airplane. Right. Um, and the first class are like nothing, you know, uh, just fantastic. And you get to move around and you get to take cool pictures. And it's just a much more relaxing experience um, than... Uh, so, mo- so what are you looking forward to most? Uh, I, I'm going to take a lot of pictures um, bringing both my iPhone, which is my primary picture-taking thing, but I'm also dusting off my my Canon uh, for this trip because I want to take lots of pictures. Of one of the the tricks I've learned recently, when you go to these places, where there are a lot of tourists, like in Venice, I've heard that the places you want to take pictures of all day are just packed with people. So um, a trick is if you want to get beautiful pictures of the most beautiful buildings and canals and bridges and things in Venice – Get up, get up really early, um, and you could take fantastic pictures. Uh, and there's nobody else there. You have these amazing places all to yourself. I actually did this in uh, Ocean City, New Jersey, my last trip two weeks ago, which I go to every year. And it's a crowded place. The boardwalk's crowded. The beach is crowded. It's always crowded. Summer, that's you know when it's supposed to be crowded. But I got up early the first day to see the sunrise, and it was empty. Boardwalk was empty. Beach was empty, beautiful sunrise. It's perfect daylight from about a half an hour before sunrise, you know, on. So there's no light issues. You just feel like you're special. You're you're the run of the entire city. And I plan to do the same in all four of these cities. Get up early and take pictures. So I have to admit I'm special in a different way. I don't want to get up early. (laughs) I mean, I I love that that things do. I, I appreciate that things absolutely do look better, not only from a crowd perspective, but there's actually characteristics of early morning light that can be yeah. incredibly beautiful uh, to, a, to an experienced photographer. The, the approach that, um, that, gee, if you had Photoshop on your iPad, you might be able to consider, <laughs> would be um, one that I stumbled onto in a YouTube video uh, last week. I've been watching a number of YouTube videos about Photoshop. And uh, what it boils down to is if you've got not a densely packed crowd, but just, you know, like tourists wandering around and you want to get a picture without the tourists, what you can do is take multiple photos about five to 10 seconds apart, just enough for the tourists to be moving and out of the way of each little piece that they were originally covering up. Then you take all those photos, however many it might take, you bring them in the Photoshop and you layer them in such a way that you can erase individuals in one photo to expose the part that they weren't standing in front of in the next photo. And when you merge them all together, you end up with a picture of this wonderful tourist attraction, whatever it might be, with nobody. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder, I wonder if that crosses the line of alternate reality too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, my, I mean, but maybe not, because you're, you, all you're trying to do is just get 
to the images that are behind the people standing in your way. So, well, you're also trying to capture your memory and what you saw there. And if if you were there when it was really empty, it feels empty, even if there were four or five or 10 people there. Well, you see, I mean, if you're looking at a site for 15 seconds or 15 minutes, you're not seeing the people in front of you, unless that is what you're paying attention to at the moment. Yeah. You're seeing the whole thing. So the still photo may block the view of this column on this building because there's a person standing in front of it. But you didn't see that when you were there. When you were there, you saw that column. You saw People were moving while yeah. you were there. People so you saw the whole well. thing. This is just a, sure. a way to capture the whole thing. And to be honest, I mean, you know, especially if there is a crowd, that's a different photo right? You capture a photo of the crowd for the crowd's sake, because that's interesting too. It doesn't say, you know, you can't do both. You know, I remember looking at, uh, you know, if you, you look at some of the earliest photographs that were taken back at the beginning of photography, when they had to take exposures of several minutes, um, because that's, you know, the best equipment they had was several minutes to get a, a photograph. Um, they would take photos of city scenes and there were people and horses and carriages moving around and they would all get erased because the light coming in, uh, basically they didn't stand in one place long enough for that to make enough of an exposure. So you get these ghostly images. If you look at like, you know, 1860 picture of Paris or something like that, or maybe it was 1820. I forget when it was, I think it was like 1820 or whatever. They, it looks like the cities are abandoned. Those first, maybe the first 10 years of photos. Even though there was thousands of pictures or people in the, in the picture. And and, for the two people that are standing on a corner talking to each other for 20 minutes. Well, they would do (laughs) some of the guys that realized that this was spooky because they they didn't, it didn't look spooky to them because nobody had seen a photograph before. Right. So you take a picture like that. You show the panel, here's a picture of, of, you know, the, uh, you know, Paris and it, you know, it doesn't look spooky because what are you comparing it to? You, You never saw anything except a painting of that maybe. And, but there were a couple of people that did uh, things like they would take one guy, sit him in the middle of the photo in a chair, and he would remain perfectly still for the 15 minutes it took to do the exposure. And you would get this picture of this, what was supposed to be a very busy area, like a busy square, and it looks like there's just one guy sitting by himself, kind of eerie and spooky. But I've seen these in history books, and they don't explain them in the history books. They'll show, you know, here's the monument erected in the middle of, you know, whatever, you know, whatever city taken, you know, in 1820. And they don't explain that the reason that you only see the monument and there's no people there is because the exposure was super long. And that's why all that stuff went away. Whereas if you look at photography texts, they explain that and say, this is why it's not because it was empty and there were no people around back then. It's because the exposures were long. So it kind of reminds me of the same thing. You're trying to recreate that using Photoshop now and, uh, and, manually editing out all the all the people in different layers yeah, we need all this technology to get back to the beginning it's yeah, the opposite yeah. it's the opposite extreme too right instead of one picture taking 15 or 20 minutes within a few minutes you take dozens of pictures oh sure and multiple exposures are useful a lot i have a friend that will take pictures of lighthouses with the stars in the background and yes. you know in one in one shot you're not you know the light from the lighthouse is going to drown out any stars but if you you take up an exposure that gets the stars and another exposure that gets the lighthouse and another exposure that gets the foreground, you know. It's funny. I, I was I, very coincidentally this morning, I was watching a video on somebody doing exactly that um, when not in Photoshop, just his photography style. 
um, was to do exactly that. He was explaining how he got a picture of the Milky Way and then what he did to make the tree that was part of the composition uh, actually stand out uh, properly. It was very, very interesting to, uh, to see that technique. By the way, to come around full circle to your travels, if you get a chance before you go, Google, or I should say search on YouTube uh, for train videos for the locations you're going. Mm-hmm. There are some amazing videos. Some of them, I believe, are live where they've stuck a camera on the front of a train on its regular run. And the ones that I've seen are like up in Norway and, and you know, the, the, that region of Europe. But this, the, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderfully scenic and beautiful view as this train is going through all these, uh, all these locations. So it'd be interesting to understand if some of the trains that you might be taking might give you, you might be able to preview by going to YouTube. Yeah, I could figure out what side of the train is the best one. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Sit on or whatever. I think sometimes it's sometimes it's serendipity. When I, we were going through um, Europe, uh, now sorry, Japan. I was with a friend who is a professional videographer and photographer, and we were taking lots of pictures out the train windows, and uh, and I had my iPhone with me, and there was Mount Fuji was right out the window, but I was on the wrong side. He ran to get a good view out of another window. I just took my iPhone, took a, a burst photo of like 10 photos, and there were people in front of me, and the wind, you know, I got the window in the frame, and the photo came out amazing. The, the window mm. and the person looking out the window is in perfect silhouette, and the exposure happened to be perfect on Mount Fuji, centered in the middle of what is obviously a train window, and a woman looking out of the train window at Mount Fuji. Cool. And we, we, he looked at that and said, Damn, you know, taking, <laughs> taking, taking all these photos and doing everything right. And I just like, oh, okay, click. <laughs> and I just happened to get, you know, this one photo. So sometimes. So well, after all that, you're going to have to send me the photo to put on the show page. Yeah, yeah no, I, I want to see it too. To. Yeah. We actually sent that into a, there was a contest that would get you reimbursed for your, uh, your train travels uh, at the time. And I, we sent that in as our, our picture. And, uh, but unfortunately, I guess we didn't win. So, but anyway, I'll send that to you, Randy. So you've got some busy stuff coming up. Obviously, I've been playing with Photoshop and plan to, in addition to my usual uh, writings. Randy, you've got something interesting coming up. Yeah, last night uh, I put in an offer on a new house. Congratulations. Congratulations. uh, Kit and I are moving from our 40 acres on a mesa with nobody around us to in town. Uh, She wants to uh, be near more people. And I got my dream of living on 40 acres on a dirt road. So now it's her turn. So I, uh, I'm just glad that she wants to live in the local town and not some town in another state. And to be clear, it's the same town you technically live in now. It's yeah, it's just- my address, my mailing address town, um, but we're moving and it takes 20 minutes to get there. This is a kind of a 15. wide open area. <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends if I'm on the ambulance call. Yeah, I could do it faster. Um, Oh, no, I, I, I was going 60, 60 miles an hour on that dirt road the other day yeah. because we had a really hairy ambulance call. But um, normally it takes 20 minutes to get into town. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I hope, you, uh, I hope they accept your offer with absolutely no changes. That would be nice, but probably unlikely. Well, you know, it's, it's the beginning of a negotiation. But. And, and then the next step, of course, is to get our house sold. It is on the market. It is. Good. Cool. All right. I guess that wraps it up. I think so. All right. So 
The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh32. We'll have Gary's picture and a bunch of other neat stuff. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the TEH Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next Tuesday. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.